0: Hi, this is Rupa. Just got to say thank you to everyone who's listening. I really want to hear more from you about what questions I should explore, who I should talk to. Tweet me at Rupa Shanoi because I want this podcast to reflect you. And right now, I'm just following my instincts and my instincts will always take me to Idris Elba. <laughs> this is the music from the BBC show he stars in, Luther. Elba's kind of a British George Clooney, but way better. He just became the first man to win two Screen Actors Guild Awards in one night. And a few days ago, Elba addressed the British Parliament.
1: I just wanna say that I was honored just the other day to receive and become an officer of the British Empire. And the exact title is, and i read it out for you, Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Snappy. Now, of course, the word empire is laden with meaning, especially to the son of a Ghanaian mother and a Syrian father. Right? The irony isn't lost on me.
0: And that was his jumping off point for a half hour long speech about the lack of diversity in media.
1: The Britain I come from is the most successful, diverse, multicultural country on the earth. But here's my point. You wouldn't know it if you turned on the TV. I didn't see myself or my culture on TV, so I literally just stopped watching it. Instead, I decided to go and become TV.
0: Elba explained to his largely white audience that the kids of immigrants without role models have to sort of make themselves up.
1: I'm a product of my imagination. Made in Hackney, made in Newham, made in Dagenham, but above all i was made in my mind
0: a lot of kids of immigrants realize that they are a combination of elements no one's ever seen before like a small indian american woman who's a hard news reporter i surprise people that's not their fault they just haven't met someone like me before
1: we can't help putting people in boxes it's practically a national pastime the funny thing it's not good for the people locked in the boxes, and it's definitely not good for the people who decide what goes on the box.
0: Elba, like many other actors of color, was passed over for this year's Oscars. But he still believes in change enough to work with the establishment. Four British broadcasters have agreed to collect diversity data on the people who make television and the people who are on television.
1: Our broadcasting industry will be the first in the world to have hard data about the groups that are locked inside boxes. It shows us what the diversity policies actually work. Now, once we, we know that, we can actually benchmark progress. And that's what I'm asking for, is actually can we make some progress?
0: I think a lot of people are doing what Elba's doing, attempting to help people identify stereotypes, understand their harm, move past them, and heal. This episode, we talk to four people who are doing that in very different ways. We'll spend the most time with Renee Goslin, an MIT assistant professor of marketing whose parents are from
2: Trinidad and Tobago. I know that I'm not what people think of when they think of a professor. Maybe even my students will pass me right on by and not recognize me. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood.
0: Ada Singh is a freelancer in California who writes about pop culture for Asian-American-focused magazines. She set out to chip away at the perception that East Asian men aren't hot. That's a stereotype that people are still okay with believing and talking about, Singh says. She points to a new Chelsea Handler Netflix series. Here's a clip.
3: So what kind of guys do you like? I like a lot of guys. Yeah, girl. Do you you date like, what do them? you like? I like a lot of different kind of so guys, I. too. Black I don't guys. like Asian guys, so I've never
2: dated an Asian haven't guy. haven't either.
3: Nobody I really actually does. met one, like, two weeks ago, <laughs> and I was, like, shocked that I, like, thought he was attractive. Not in a bad way. I just, I'm not really attracted to them, you know? No, I feel bad for Asian men,
0: because who is? <laughs> this is Ada.
3: It's fine for her to be honest about it. Like, she's attracted to who she's attracted to, but just the fact that that is just a punchline. It's still just a punchline, you know? Nobody takes issue with it. A lot of people probably agree with her, you know? So, like, you know, it's still a thing.
0: And it's a thing that Ada wanted to do something about. She decided to create a calendar featuring hot Asian men.
3: You always see kind of like a guy at the beach coming out of the water, kind of like Daniel Craig and James Bond. Mm -hmm. I think from the beginning I was thinking, Like, who can we get to do that? Like, who can we get to come out of these, like, do a really, like, hot, sexy photo shoot, but just have something a little bit off? (laughs) So it's kind of a joke, but it's serious. Like, they look very hot, but it's clear that we're making fun of it a little bit. It took a while, because I think in the beginning, I was a little bit shyer about asking people if they wanted to take their shirt
0: off. <laughs> but guys were into it, Ada says. She got YouTube stars, actors, musicians to pose for the calendar. Ada's male editor didn't want to underwrite the project, so she did a Kickstarter.
3: There's an extra joy in celebrating high Asian-American men because it feels like it's not just superficial. Not that it wouldn't be just as fun if it was superficial. But it does sort of feel like (laughs) like, no, this is there's something important about this. There's young Asian American men (laughs) that are not that don't have role models that might think a certain way about themselves because it's completely fine for, you know, in the things that they watch on T V for people to make fun of them and just say, like, I'm not attracted to you and it's fine. Like, we all think this, so let's laugh about it, you know?
0: (laughs) Ada's sold hundreds of the calendars, and not all of the people buying it are Asian.
3: I definitely thought that I was probably creating it for a very specific small community. Like, I thought I was speaking to other Asian American women, which was great, and I was really happy with that. But I think what I realized when we kickstarted it and I started interacting with a lot of people who are excited about it a lot of young people who are fans of these men was that it wasn't a specifically Asian audience like it was pretty diverse actually and I think you know it, there's something like that to me I find really positive because like you know, there's these stereotypes that I've been around forever and I feel like seeing these young people kind of <laughs> left after diverse young people, less together. Um, <laughs> I feel like, to me, there's a little bit of hope that maybe these stereotypes are changing.
0: But for now, many of those stereotypes persist. One place you can find them? The top-rated American TV show, The Big Bang Theory, and its Indian character, Raj.
1: Sheldon, are you busy? I've reconsidered your offer to let me work with you. For me. <laughs> yes for you i do however have a few conditions first at all times i'm to be treated as a colleague and an equal second my contributions shall be noted in all published materials and third you are never allowed to lecture me on hinduism or my indian culture i'm impressed raj those are very cogent and reasonable conditions thank you i reject them all then you leave me no choice i accept the job (laughs)
0: Even these stereotypes that seem benign can be harmful. That's what Jerry Park thinks. He's a sociology professor at Baylor University in Texas. He's trying to find out whether the Asian model minority myth actually works against other minority groups.
4: I went to a predominantly African-American high school in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot through my classmates about the way they felt they were being treated by law enforcement, and I observed how teachers who generally are quite fair or, and, and uh, brilliant in their own rights. But, gosh, it seemed like there was this sort of disproportional treatment towards the African-American students. And then I'd hear white students talk about what their parents would tell them about, you know, why um, African-Americans are not doing as well in society as, as other groups, like those Asians, like you, Jerry, you know? So all of a sudden, I, I guess I'm sort of internalizing this experience that, wow, people keep seeing me as, like, different from other minorities. Maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, I've always wanted to know if there's a way to figure out whether or not that's actually pervasive, not just uh, the small community within Philadelphia, but, yeah, is it true around the country? And if so, what are its implications?
0: Jerry did a study I saw written up recently in The Atlantic. It took the responses from roughly 900 students at seven top colleges, including Princeton, Northwestern, Rice, and Berkeley, They were asked to rate individual racial groups on a scale of 1 to 10 for characteristics like intelligence and hard work. Jerry found white students who believe the stereotype of Asian Americans as the model minority tend to judge other minority groups in comparison.
4: It's a positive stereotype that has some pretty significant negative outcomes.
0: Was there any mechanism for them to, say, like, question the premise of the questions? that they would be able to rate an entire group?
4: No, and apparently, uh, at least for these students, and I guess this seems to happen over and over again in, in all kinds of studies, if you just simply ask the question out there, people will answer. You, you sort of hope that you, <laughs> you won't find that these stereotypes actually work, because if they do, that means we're kind of stuck with this unless we can find some kind of intervention early on in the next generation's life.
0: Oh, you think so? Because that's the, that's the argument I get back a lot which is, you know, it's just a matter of time. There's still immigration happening to this country. We're going to get more and more diverse. We're going to look like the world, and we will slowly adjust. It's just, you know, how the country works as it acclimates to waves of immigration, and we just need to be, you know, patient. This is just natural.
4: Yeah, patient, yes, but deliberate about educating the next generation about stereotypes and minimizing them as much as possible.
0: And that takes us to our third example. Jamie Casup thinks we can teach kids to resist the stereotypes others place upon them. Jamie is Google's chief education evangelist. He goes around the country making speeches about how technology can improve education.
5: So think about it this way, right? So for most of history, where you were born and the proximity to books and libraries determined your academic success, right? So if you think about someone like me being 10 years old, living in Hell's Kitchen, New York, what was my access to information, right? It was the library on 51st Street, Columbus, uh, the, the library, on 51st Street, and 10th Avenue, the Columbus Library. That's where my resources were. That's where my information was. Today, a 10-year-old has access to everything, and given that they can see a different world, right? And, and you know, if you still, if you turn on the television today, and I have done this test with people, you know, just turn on the television at a given time, even through the three hundred channels that you might have on television, you'll skip through those channels, and you'll notice the roles that people play. It's either a white guy who's the lawyer and the black Latino guy who's the prisoner, right? We still have those stereotypes. We still use those roles. But the difference is that if I don't want to see that, I don't have to see that. I can see whatever I want. I can go read any news I want. I can look up, you know, on Google, I can look up, you know, the most influential Latinos in the country, and I'll get a list of people, and I'll know what they're doing, right? Because we have access to so much information that we can create our own expectation of ourselves, our own expectation of the world, instead of someone, like, telling us what those expectations should be.
0: Jamie's the son of a single mother who came to the States from Argentina. He remembers many times when he was told to have low expectations.
5: I took one of those tests where, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up, third or fourth grade, and the results came back that I was going to be an IRS agent, which is the the, the funniest thing in the world. And no offense to anyone who's an IRS agent, uh, it just wasn't what I thought I was going to be. I didn't even know what an IRS agent was. And I remember the teacher saying, you probably won't be an IRS agent, but if you work hard, you probably can get a good city job, right? It's those low expectations. And that still happens today. And I'm not gonna throw anybody on the bus, but I was at a, I was sitting on a panel uh, at an education conference and I answered a question that someone had in the audience about school closings and w- what does it mean? And I don't remember what the answer was, but I gave this like long passionate answer. And the, the, one of the panelists, and this is a famous person, right? <laughs> turned to me and said, you're very articulate. And then, you know, my thought in my head was, what did you think I was going to sound like? Right? Like, I, you know, so so it's still there that, you know, that's what I talk about when I talk about low expectations. It's the societal expectations and stereotypes that we have about what people's roles should be.
0: As a young professional, Jamie learned how he wanted to deal with stereotypes.
5: I was at Accenture and I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I was dressing the way I thought I was supposed to be dressing. And I was wearing khakis and pang loafers and, and a button down blue shirt. I had short hair and it was parted to the side. And I didn't realize what I was trying to do. And what I was trying to do is fit in. And I remember being completely uncomfortable in the way I was dressed and what I looked like. And I just didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like me. And then I just decided, I think I was 25, and I just, you know, back to stubbornness, decided that I'm just going to be me and, you know, like write this out and see where it goes. And then I started wearing, you know, what I like, right, which was more, I I still stayed within the dress code. But instead of wearing the blue button-down shirts, I wore purple shirts or I wore yellow shirts or I wore, you know, more Latino type of shirts. And every once in a while, someone would give me comments like, you know, I'd wear a purple shirt and somebody would say, hey, what do you think we're in a club, right? Like you would get those comments all the time. So I kind of ignored that. And what's interesting about dress codes is, is again, where, we have to ask ourselves as a society, like, where do they come from, right? Like, where do the HR dress policies come from? So I'm in the middle of writing an article that I want to release soon about dress codes. When an HR policy person sits down and says, everyone has to wear shoes and they have to wear slacks and they have to wear a button-down shirt, like, why? Where does that come from? And why do you get to pick and choose what that business dress looks like? And and when you start digging into it, you start realizing that potentially you're causing bias again, because you get some kid who's growing up in in South Harlem or growing up in, in South Texas or growing up wherever, who has never seen anyone in khakis and a button down shirt, right? Why can't they show up the way they're comfortable, right? So I'm trying to bring light to that issue as well, because I think that the whole, you know, we try to get people, we want people to come into our companies and into our organizations. We want them to be who they are. But you no, know, that we at the same time turn around and tell them how they can dress and, and, and what they can look like. And I think that we're, that's the mistake.
0: Was there a point when you felt the change from being an outsider to being an insider? Do you feel like an
5: insider now? <laughs> that's a great question. I feel like I'm an outsider because I don't run into a lot of people that share my background or my experiences that I can relate to, right? And that's a problem in the world that we live in because we tend to hire people who are like us. And so, for me, I think lots of us will tell you that we've been able to balance a world where we can live inside the world that we live in, but also still be an outsider. Um, And 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 it's very subtle. I I can't put. You know, I've had I've been fortunate to meet the president twice, um, and. And the way he the way he shakes my hand is different than the way he shakes the guy next to me hand, right? It's just there's something different. And and those of us who are outsiders have some kind of code. Even if we're inside, we're still kind of outsiders. Here's the other thing: is that I want to be an outsider only because I want to show people that are growing up the way I grew up that you can be you, right? Like no, you you can you you can you can dress the way you dress, you can be who you are, you can say who you are, you can you can talk about the things that you want to talk about and still be on the inside but still hold on to who you really are.
0: We're going to spend the rest of the episode with someone who's trying to teach people how to adjust to us being who we really are. Renee Goslin worked in advertising for Leo Burnett and Louis Vuitton before becoming a professor of marketing at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Her research is focused on brands and how they function as symbols of social status. She was featured in Forbes when she came out with findings that black market knockoffs can actually be advantageous to luxury brands.
2: Hi, everybody. Great to see you. I know...
0: Renee does talks on
2: inclusive leadership, and she starts by posing the question, What does a professor look like? If I don't fit that image, what happens? So research, for instance, has shown that people of color and women tend to be penalized more so when they behave. They have the same actions, but they behave in a way that is ostensibly incongruent with the expectations of the role. Long before I went to college, I think I had a very strong sense of what a professor looked like. I think we can probably all conjure this image of sort of like the guy in Back to the Future with the gray, wild hair. I love that guy. (laughs) Yeah. No, I love the movie. Maybe, you know, the, the velvet patches on the elbows. Brilliant, but definitely male, older, white, no question about it. When you think of a professor, and if you Google, Google image professor, The images that will come up are, by and large, pretty consistent with that description. I know that for myself, I am probably the first black female professor some of my students have had. And I know that I'm not what people think of when they think of a professor. Certainly, I've had my experiences where I've been, you know, setting up for class and the audiovisual person, who happened to be a white male, who was helping me set up, was approached as the professor, not me. And I've had instances where I've been asked, you know, what year are you? And I take it as a compliment. Certainly, I, I imagine that means I look perhaps younger than anticipated. And depending on how I'm dressed, what I find that's interesting. If I come to campus, even on days when I teach, I certainly am in a you know a suit and I'm dressed that way. But on days where I don't teach, I'm dressed down a little bit more. And maybe my hair is in a pony. I don't know, depending on whether it's a curl friendly day or not. And I notice that just even my dress will change dramatically the way I'm received, where people who even maybe even my students will pass me right on by and not recognize me in the cafeteria, let's say, or something like that. So who, who does a professor look like? What does a professor look like? And when people see my image, I don't think that that's what comes to mind, but perhaps if we can change those associations, two things can start to happen. One is we'll get more and more people who ostensibly don't look like professors, thinking, you know what, I could be a professor. For people like myself, who are on the faculty at places, to feel like, okay, I do belong here. This is right, and it's okay that I'm here and I, I belong here. Because that's a big part of every day, feeling like, you know, I can do this and I can perform. Why do you do these talks? What do you hope comes out of them? A lot of people may feel nervous about saying the wrong thing. And I can understand why you don't want to offend. And sometimes it's just easier to avoid than to engage and potentially offend. But that's not really a solution. So what I try to do is be very open and honest while of course being respectful so that people feel comfortable asking questions and raising the topics and it's okay because I'm inviting them to do it, right? Which is very different than if I'm out to dinner and someone who doesn't know me approaches me and says, can you tell me why black people feel a certain way? <laughs> it's, you know, I didn't uh, take on the role of the, the speaker of the, the community, as it were, but in this case, if you can cultivate uh, an atmosphere that's characterized by trust, be amazed by how people can sort of open up.
0: Was there ever a time when all of this frustrated you? Because you sound like supremely mature <laughs> from the time that you were very young, and and thinking through all of this quite clearly. But to come to this rational end, I would have started out at a place where I was frustrated or angry or something like that.
2: Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you'd known me in college. The fact that I'm married to a white man, you've been like, really? Because I think my I, I was reacting to a lot of experiences that I had in high school. So where I grew up in Brooklyn, there was a lot of strife. This was during the crack epidemic. We also had racial strife in terms of some incidents in Bensonhurst and just a lot of really awful tragedies that were characterized by racial wounds that were clearly not healed and that were leading to more hurt. And a lot of people feeling, particularly in low-income areas, that they had an adversarial relationship with police. And just some feelings that frankly are a little reminiscent of what we've been experiencing as of late with Black Lives Matter. And there was a surge of these types of events in Brooklyn during this time. That was my Brooklyn in the 90s. So here I was living in this setting, but I ended up going for high school to a school that was predominantly white. And it was not my zone school. My zone school was a public school that at the time was in bad shape with respect to crime and so on, metal detectors and so I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go to a school that was in a different part of Brooklyn but also was was predominantly white and I was the only black girl. It was a very small high school but I was the only black girl in the school. That experience was rough from a racial standpoint because not only was it against this backdrop that was just volatile and awful, and the crime. But also, there was no real black history or multicultural teaching to speak of. Um, I remember there was one day, we had one day that was like during Black History Month, we had, all right, here's our Black History Day. It was one class on that one day in Black History Month. And I remember certain things that have made indelible marks on me. And you know, these are kids, so, Kids will say whatever kids say, but things like, why don't we have White History Month? And um, my parents came over here from XYZ European country and they're doing well. What's wrong with black people? And things like that. And being very, very frustrated, angry, because I didn't have the right answers. So here I am, knowing that I have hardworking, good parents. Uh, a good family, and I know many people like this. And yet, for all intents and purposes, people feel like people like me are just bad. And they feel free to speak about it in school, and moreover, to ask me to explain. And I was unable to answer intelligently, except to say something like, racism you know (laughs) which is like okay not exactly the most eloquent response but I didn't have really the tools and so got to college and started to really dig more deeply into sociology and a lot of kind of understanding of how we got to where we are and it was really important to me to to be able to answer some of these questions from high school. It's almost like I couldn't move forward until I got a sense of that, what was going on there, because it was bugging me so badly. And I knew that it wasn't because immigrants or black people are just inferior. um, And so it took me a long time to answer those questions and to be at peace with the fact that just like I didn't have the answers to those questions, they didn't have the answers to those questions because nobody was teaching us those answers. When you are challenged, your very merits are challenged and questioned and you can't defend yourself, it can be debilitating. And so being able to learn more, for me, was a way of saying, I'm no longer frustrated and therefore angry. I'm now able to speak more intelligently to this. And whether you're willing to learn or to accept is on you. But whether I'm willing to let that frustrate me is on me. And I am not willing to do that and I'm, I'm, I wanna speak intelligently to what I know to be real. So that's how I got <laughs> to where I am. And to this day, like even in my, you know, my class is not about diversity or inclusivity. I teach behavioral science to future leaders. But you better believe that within that, I try and make sure that different perspectives are heard, different protagonists in the different cases that we use, and that we talk about how different perspectives and the implications of inclusivity for performance. That's my way of alleviating, I would say, the frustration that I felt when I was, you know, a junior in high school, let's say, and just wanted to say it's more complicated than that. Do you tell your students about your background? My students in my class, Know that I'm Trinidadian. My parents come to visit and so they meet them. And what I've noticed is when I meet, whether people are Trinidadian or not, I meet other children of immigrants. There is definitely a bond because I think you develop this really interesting skill set that proves to be beneficial over time, which is you serve as sort of an informal diplomat in your own home. You learn how to translate a sort of cultural ache <laughs> and translate your family's culture to other to Americans and vice versa. So, it develops in you this really interesting skill of being able to engage in perspective taking at a very young age and understand, okay, how can I communicate this in a way that bridges or how can I bring these thoughts and these ideas and this culture to a different audience? to maximize connections. Obviously, I didn't think about it that way at the time. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, how do I translate my parents' accent so that Americans can understand what they're saying? Or how do I explain what this song is is trying to convey or what Carnival is? Um, Or even the racial code in Trinidad, which is far more complex than it is here in the United States. But that has really, really served me well and I think that, it through my through my experiences, I've noticed that other children of immigrants have developed that same skill set too. Did, was it Harvard? Did you go to Harvard? I did for undergraduate and graduate studies.
0: That that kind of must have been a, like a shock, right? After growing up <laughs> amongst a lot of your
2: own people. Oh yeah. Oh, it was very much a culture shock. I, um, I'm i the first person in my family to have the opportunity to go to college because my parents uh, came to the States and were focused on making a life for us. Um, and so I grew up with my grandma, grandpa, I mean, the very traditional kind of, you know, everyone under one roof, three generations um, living under one roof and my two brothers. and education was always put forth to me as being essential, um, to opening up opportunity, uh, to really developing yourself, and, and my parents drilled that into my head, much to my chagrin growing up when on the weekends, rather than go to the library, I wanted to gonna go to the mall. But when you don't get an allowance, why are you at the mall anyway? Um, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> I'm not <that> bitter. No. Um, <laughs> And I will say it was self-centered, right? Like, my being able to come home and say to my parents, well, this is how we do it in America, was totally my way of hoping that I would get kind of more freedom, right? I mean, girls get to date boys in America. Or, um, you know, you get your own phone line in America. <laughs> <laughs> or when you turn 16, you get a car in America. <laughs> and um, so that didn't, none of those things um flew by the way with my parents. So when I got to Harvard, well, first of all, I didn't even want to apply to Harvard because I thought there's no way that I would get in. My grandmother came to this country and she worked as a domestic and she was the first one who came and brought my dad over and then my mom and, and of course I came along after. And she said, back in the day, I want my grandchildren to go to JFK's school because she adored JFK, and he was like the American dream to her. And so JFK went to Harvard, and when it came time for college applications, Harvard was brought up, but I absolutely took myself out of the game. I was fortunate enough that my folks, and in particular my mom said, you can apply wherever you like, but just please include Harvard include the Ivy League schools. And I did. And I had no expectations, or rather my expectations were probably negative or low, because my familiarity with Harvard was very low. And whatever imagery I'd seen of Harvard, the professors, what do they look like? The students, what do they look like? I didn't see anyone who looked like me. And I didn't have the benefit of prep schools and my parents knowing how to play the game so I just thought that that was not in the cards for me and so I applied because I was pretty much told to and this is why Trinidadian culture (laughs) with listening to your parents is actually a good thing in retrospect because I kind of had to and if I didn't have to obey my parents I wouldn't be where I am now what happened I remember one of the best moments of my life, I started to get the correspondence from schools with admissions. And I heard back from all the schools, including the Ivy League ones, and I got in and I was just stunned. I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather. But Harvard was the last one. And so I thought, okay, well, whatever. I didn't even want to go anyway, right? And every other school, when they send you their admissions, letter came in a packet right with like the brochure and all these other kind of accoutrement and the Harvard letter came and it was just in a regular uh, business letter envelope and my grandmother was home because by this time she had retired and I got home from school the letter from Harvard was there and I saw it and it looked pretty thin so I thought well bummer, but you know, I didn't really think I was going to get in. I mean, it's a shock that I got into these other schools, frankly. And I opened it with my grandmother, who was there, I think, to support me, even though I hadn't gotten into JFK school, or I didn't think I had. And when I opened that letter, and it said, essentially, congratulations, more information to come. My grandmother and I started hysterically laughing crying, fell on the floor. I mean, we were, I can't imagine what we looked like. It was as if we'd won the Powerball or something. And my little brothers came down the stairs and they were like, what is happening? Are you crying? Are you upset? And we just couldn't even speak. We had no words. And she didn't live very long after I went to Harvard, but the best was my freshman dorm I moved in and they had the desk there for me and my grandmother sat down at my desk at Harvard and I have this picture of her and it's the look on her face of pride, joy and a dream realized because this was her dream not mine that uh, just to this day that picture I'm just transported back and it's why I do what I do. It's, it's why I went to Harvard and why I give money for financial aid for people like me. It's why I tell people about my background from Trinidad because if there's anybody who took themselves out of the game and thought, well, I'm just from Trinidad or some other small nation, or my family didn't go to college, we don't have money, you can work hard and figure out a way to at least try, and that was, I think, the dream my grandmother had when she came here, and was a a domestic, and and taking care of other people's families, and in that way, she took care care of me, even though she's not here. Can't believe I got through that without... (laughs)
0: That's it. Until next time. But before I go, I just want to say again, thank you so much for listening, for your messages and your tweets. Please tell me more about you and what you want to hear. Tweet me at Rupa Shanoi. If you're listening to this podcast, you're part of the community. You don't have to be the kid of immigrants or a person of color. As one listener wisely wrote, we need this. And by we... I mean this whole country. I'm Rupa Shinoi, and this has been Otherhood.